0: This e-multiple sclerosis review podcast is presented by DKP Med Radio.
1: On the one hand, the main goal of treatment, at least from a physician or provider perspective, is to prevent relapses and long-term disability for a patient. However, on the other hand, we do have to consider the long-term ramifications of certain disease-modifying therapies.
0: Clinical Approaches and DMT Choices. Welcome to e-multiple sclerosis review. More than 15 medications are currently available to treat MS. What approach is best to initiate therapy in a newly diagnosed patient? What factors should influence that choice? What are the potential risks of longer-term use of highly effective therapies? What does the evidence say? That's what we're here to talk about today. First with Dr. UJ Wang from the University of Washington in Seattle. And then later in the program with Dr. Ann Damian-Yakoub from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. For our guest disclosures, as well as additional CME information, please go to our website, emultiplesclerosisreview.org, and click on the Volume 3, Issue 10 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of Multiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Wang, thank you for joining
1: us. Thank you, Bob. I'm happy to be here with you today.
0: Our first learning objective focuses on the patient-specific factors that help define the most appropriate treatment approach and DMT selection. So start us out in the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Wang, with a patient scenario.
1: I think this case scenario will be familiar to many of us in clinic. This is a 21-year-old intensive care unit nurse who initially presents to your clinic for a recent diagnosis of multiple sclerosis after she was hospitalized for acute episode of optic neuritis. As expected, she's very interested in discussing her disease-modifying therapy treatment options.
0: Now, that discussion, I think, is not something every clinician is going to be completely comfortable having, even with a fellow medical professional like this ICU nurse.
1: You're totally right, Bob. It is a very difficult discussion to have with patients, especially when meeting the patient for the first time.
0: So how would you begin?
1: With a recent diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, it is very important to firstly establish rapport with the patient. First, we have to make sure that multiple sclerosis is the most accurate diagnosis for this patient. And the questions surrounding the diagnosis are answered fully. Sometimes the patient has already seen other physicians or other providers, or maybe even knows a family member or a friend with a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Some patients have already come to terms with the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis before seeing you. However, other times, and to be honest, quite frequently, the diagnosis can be very overwhelming for the patient especially for a patient who is otherwise healthy and has no other medical problems. The first visit you have with this patient may not be the best place to have a conversation about such a complex topic as disease-modifying therapy.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Wang, but what you're saying is that sometimes you need to spend that first visit just building trust with the patient, answering their questions, and most importantly, putting them at ease.
1: That's right, Bob
0: but you would need to talk about treatment approaches and DMT selection uh, pretty soon thereafter, I would imagine. So how would that conversation go?
1: I think it is very important to talk about treatment approaches and multiple sclerosis, as well as disease-modifying therapy selections, as these topics are definitely on the patient's mind whenever they come see you in clinic. I typically have a dedicated conversation regarding disease-modifying therapy, typically in a separate clinic visit, So definitely shortly thereafter, it is firstly helpful to ascertain what the individual patient's goals for treatment and preferences are. For example, some patients are quite averse to certain therapy options. For example, injectable therapies are often not preferred for patients due to needle phobia. Additionally, patients are concerned regarding risks associated with different therapies. Another consideration you should take into account for each patient is their goals that may impact therapy choice. For example, family planning or planning for pregnancy, which would need to be considered depending on which disease-modifying therapy is selected. It is also very important to discuss with the patient any prognostic features of their multiple sclerosis. And I think this is something that many patients are very interested in learning about. For example, is there multiple sclerosis, quote, aggressive or mild? It is difficult to determine fully which part of the spectrum the patient may fit in. However, there are certain things that may give us a clue. Such as? For example, the frequency and region of the clinical relapses, the presence or absence of spinal cord lesions, the patient's disease burden as seen on their MRI among other features that may indicate a more aggressive disease and potential need for higher efficacy therapy for each patient you should also review any medical comorbidities that may be important certain medical conditions may preclude an individual from certain disease modifying therapies it can be very very daunting i think to have a comprehensive conversation encompassing all these aspects and even more now with over 15 medications, and I think increasing number every single year. It is not only overwhelming for the patient, but also overwhelming for the physician or provider to keep up to date on all these medications to be able to counsel the patient appropriately. Generally, I broadly outline the currently available options based on category of disease modifying therapy for example injectable oral and infusible therapies the discussion thereafter should include the dose route and frequency of administration monitoring necessary side effect profile as well as safety and risk profile of each individual therapy consideration
0: category dose route of administration and frequency, side effect profile, that's a lot of information to communicate. With so many available options, how would you help the patient narrow down her choices?
1: That's a really good question, Bob. It is definitely becoming more and more difficult, as I mentioned, with so many choices available. On the one hand, the main goal of treatment, at least from a physician or provider perspective, is to prevent relapses and long-term disability for a patient. However, on the other hand, we do have to consider the long-term ramifications of certain disease-modifying therapies.
0: Those long-term ramifications, that's something Dr. Damien Yacoub is going to talk about in the second part of this podcast. What I'd like you to talk to us about now, if you would please, are the overall approaches to initiating therapy in a newly diagnosed patient like the one you described.
1: Traditionally, as a community, we have favored the escalation approach wherein a safer but perhaps less efficacious disease-modifying therapy is started first in a patient. However, more recent evidence has pointed toward the potential long-term benefit of starting a higher efficacy medication early on in the disease course. This had actually led to many practitioners starting such higher efficacy medications as initial treatment of choice for their patients. However, these medications are not without risk. Additionally, when we review these studies, we do have to be cautious because the studies have favored generally younger patients with active multiple sclerosis and the patient population may be more homogenous demographically than what is encountered in the real world. There are actually many patients we encounter in the clinical setting who are on the milder spectrum of the multiple sclerosis disease course. And to be honest, these patients are not well represented in these studies. To date, there are no completed prospective randomized controlled clinical trials comparing different treatment paradigms.
0: But there are trials currently underway that compare these treatment approaches.
1: There are currently two PCORI-funded randomized clinical trials underway to attempt to address this evidence gap that we have been discussing. These two clinical trials are called TREAT-MS and DELIVER-MS.
0: The TREAT-MS trial and the DELIVER-MS trial. Uh, You wrote about those in your newsletter issue. Uh, Give us a quick synopsis review, if you would, please.
1: Sure, Bob. TREAT-MS stands for traditional versus early aggressive therapy for multiple sclerosis. DELIVER-MS stands for determining the effectiveness of early intensive versus escalation approaches for the treatment of relapsing-remitting multiple sclerosis. These two trials have similarities and differences that we'll talk about a little bit. These trials randomized treatment-naive patients with multiple sclerosis to either a traditional First-line therapy, which includes the self-administered injectables or the majority of the oral therapies, compared to highly effective therapy, which includes natalizumab, B-cell depleting agents such as ocrelizumab, alemtuzumab, or cladribine. The DELIVER MS trial randomizes all participants one to one, while in the TREAT MS trial. Participants are firstly stratified to higher versus lower risk for longer-term disability based on known prognostic features, such as demographics or clinical features. And then the patient will be randomized to a traditional or a higher efficacy therapy in a one-to-one fashion. So in this way, Treat MS somewhat mimics the thought process of a real-life practitioner. Outcome measures for these clinical trials include various clinical markers as well as radiographic and patient-reported outcomes. These trials are urgently needed and will hopefully address our current evidence gap. It is critical to provide our treatment-naive relapsing-remitting multiple sclerosis patients evidence comparing different treatment paradigms. And I think in this way, we can better inform clinical decision-making in an evidence-based
0: uh, in your own practice, doctor, is there one treatment approach you generally favor over the other?
1: Currently, I provide a more personalized approach to treatment where I generalize, try to balance risk and benefit and provide educated guidance to each patient. And we have a discussion and we arrive at a consensus treatment decision. Whether that treatment decision translates to the best long-term outcome for the individual patient or not, we do not know at this time.
0: Thank you, Dr. Wang, for that case and discussion. Let's wrap things up now by returning to our learning objective to discuss patient-specific factors that can help determine the most appropriate treatment approach and DMT selection. What are the key things our listeners need to understand?
1: I think the first key point listeners need to understand is that currently there are different treatment paradigms employed by practitioners, including escalation, early highly effective therapy, and personalized approach based on prognostic factors. Additionally, it is important to recognize that no one treatment approach fits all or even the majority of patients we encounter in clinical practice. The decision-making not only involves discussion of the available disease-modifying therapies, which can be daunting given the number of therapies available now, but additionally involves patient preferences and risk tolerance, medical history, and any pertinent comorbidities the patient may carry. As physicians, even though we can provide our best-educated assessment of patient risk and long-term prognosis, There is currently a lack of studies comparing the different treatment approaches. As I mentioned, there is emerging evidence that highly effective therapies early on may achieve better long-term outcomes. However, we must be cautious when interpreting the results of these studies as they may not be broadly applicable to all of our patients. There are currently two trials underway, the Treat-MS and Deliver-MS trials. Which will hopefully provide us with evidence to help guide our decision making when selecting a treatment approach early on for our treatment naive patients.
0: Thank you, Dr. UJ Wang from the University of Washington, and our e multiple sclerosis review podcast will return in just a moment. Let's talk about COVID nineteen. The pandemic continues. Evidence of increased mortality among people with comorbidities has grown. Each new research report clarifies some things but confuses others. What does it mean for people with multiple sclerosis? Patients have questions and concerns. How should clinicians respond? What information can help clinicians provide the safest and most effective individualized therapy? Bottom line, what do we know now? That's the focus of our upcoming eMultiple Sclerosis Review Special Edition, COVID-19 and MS, What We Currently Know. In this interactive newsletter, Dr. Michael Kornberg from the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, one of our e-multiple sclerosis review program directors, analyzes the current data, then, with guest experts reporting from the field, discusses how what we currently know can affect practice. Critical topics include disease and DMT monitoring in the pandemic, DMT risk in the context of COVID, and vaccine safety and DMTs. COVID-19 and MS, what we currently know. A special edition coming soon from E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. And we're back to our E-Multiple Sclerosis Review podcast. I'd like to welcome to our program now our second guest, Dr. Ann damien Yacoub, an assistant professor of neurology at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Yacoub, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Let's turn to our second learning objective. Describe the potential risk profiles that may be associated with specific highly effective therapies as compared to the more modestly effective therapies. Uh, so if you would please, Dr. Damien Yakub, take us to the clinic with another patient scenario.
2: A 45-year-old woman with relapsing or MS presents for follow-up in clinic. She started treatment with ocrelizumab three years ago. She reports that things are stable from an MS perspective and she has not experienced any new symptoms or relapses. She does complain of multiple upper respiratory tract infections, which exacerbate her underlying asthma and require the frequent use of inhalers. She was recently admitted to the ICU for a severe viral pneumonia with superimposed fungal infection from which she is still slowly recovering.
0: She's on ocrelizumab. That's one of the B-cell depleting agents that are becoming more widely used in clinical practice, and she's been on it now for three years. What do we know about the longer-term use of B-cell depleting agents? What does the evidence say, doctor?
2: That's a great question. Briefly, there is limited evidence regarding the long-term adverse effect profile of ocrelizumab, Data from the OPERA trials, which compared ocrelizumab to interferon beta-1a, demonstrated that upper respiratory infections and nasopharyngitis were more common in the patients treated with ocrelizumab, though the overall percentage of patients reporting serious infections in the ocrelizumab group was actually lower than in the interferon beta-1a group at 1.8% as compared to 3.8%. However, the OPERA trial was 96 weeks in duration, and thus the longer-term implications of regular ocrelizumab use were not studied. Recently published open-label extension data, which continued to evaluate the use of ocrelizumab for five years, demonstrated two serious infections in the ocrelizumab group, systemic Pasteurella infection following a cat bite and enterovirus-induced fulminant hepatitis in a diabetic patient. Both patients recovered.
0: The findings from the OPERA trial and its extension are interesting, but as you noted, they don't provide definitive answers about long-term treatment. What do other trials say?
2: One study which has been useful in evaluating this question is a registry study from Sweden by Luna and colleagues, which was recently published. This was a nationwide registry-based cohort study, which was conducted in Sweden from 2011 to 2017. MS registry was used, and all patients with relapsing-remitting multiple sclerosis who were initiating treatment with rituximab, natalizumab, fingolimod, interferon beta, and glatiramer acetate were included. In this study, serious infections were defined as all infections resulting in hospitalization. The study authors found that there was a significantly increased rate of infections in patients taking rituximab as compared to interferon beta or glatiramer acetate. With regards to time to first serious infection, the study disease-modifying therapies seemed to diverge with respect to risk at approximately two years after the start of therapy. However, herpetic infections, as measured by use of herpetic antiviral therapy, was similar to that of interferon-beta and glatiramer acetate in patients treated with rituximab but was increased in patients treated with natalizumab and fingolimod. This large observational study provides some real-world evidence suggesting a differential risk of serious infection among highly effective disease-modifying therapies. It's important to note that there are several limitations to this study. Firstly, causation cannot be inferred as this is a cohort study. Also important to note that while using registry data provided a large number of patients for inclusion... This high-level view of data with lack of clinical information beyond what was collected with assigned diagnoses and collected drugs should be interpreted with caution. With regards to the risk of PML, as of January 31st, 2020, nine cases of PML have been reported in patients treated with bucrelizumab, eight of which were after using other disease-modifying therapies first. To summarize, The potential risk of infections associated with longer-term use of B-cell depleting agents remains of concern, and that's something that patients and physicians should both be mindful of, as described in this case presentation.
0: The risk profile of the different DMTs, how does that play into this conversation with the patient?
2: So that's a really important point. Similar to the discussion regarding treatment strategy escalation versus highly effective disease-modifying therapy. A really thorough discussion with your patient about the risk profiles of each proposed disease modifying therapy is an important part of your conversation. Equally important is being really open with our patients regarding the unknown longer term risks, particularly with regard to newer disease modifying therapies on the market. So, ultimately, a decision which takes into account both the patient's risk tolerance as well as the clinical and paraclinical characteristics of their MS presentation needs to be made. And it's really important for us to be open with our patients regarding the unknowns of optimal treatment strategies like we've discussed previously, as well as the longer-term risk profiles of newer DMTs, which again are largely unknown.
0: Well, thank you for bringing us this case in discussion, Dr. Damien Yacoub. Let's wrap things up now by revisiting our learning objective in light of our conversation. So, the potential risk profiles that may be associated with specific highly effective therapies as compared to the more modestly effective therapies. Uh, Doctor, what are the key things our listeners should take away from our discussion?
2: Longer-term use of B-cell depletion may be associated with increased risk of serious infections, serious infections in this case being defined as those requiring hospitalization. Additionally, a discussion of these potential risks, as well as the limited long-term data with patients as they start B-cell depleting therapy is an important element of patient counseling. And lastly, we're hopeful that the two large-scale randomized control trials that Dr. Wang mentioned treat MS and deliver MS will not only shed light on optimal treatment strategies for MS patients, but also may eventually provide longer-term data regarding the differential risk profiles of the disease-modifying therapies that we prescribe to patients.
0: Dr. Anne Damien Yacoub from the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins University and Dr. U.J. Wang from the University of Washington. Thank you both for sharing your insight and expertise with us in this eMultiple Sclerosis Review podcast. For eMultiple Sclerosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ems.dkb.com. eMultiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Biogen Incorporated, the Genzyme Organization, Celgene Corporation, and Genentech. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-multiple sclerosis review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.